I'm going to talk from Genesis today. I don't awfully preach from Genesis, but because um, it's, it's harder to preach from Genesis, I think. It's easier to preach from the apostles, I mean, like, like Paul. All you have to really do is, with, with Paul is just put it in your own words, and there's a preach, because he's just preaching to you for the words of the God. If you, ever, if, if you ever need someone to preach to you, just read Ephesians or Galatians or Philippians or Romans. It's just Paul preaching at us, and it's incredible. Um, but I want to start in, in one of my most amusing passages, and, and the title of the talk I'm giving, I've actually got a title. It's called Bring On the Substitute. Very apt as we just got to a World Cup final. Bring on the substitute. Um, and, and I'm going to start in Luke 24. You don't need to turn there because you'll know the story. There are two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I know you'll know the story. And they, uh, they've, they've, they've just witnessed Jesus die on the cross. And they don't quite understand what's happened. The women have been to the tomb and they're saying it's empty. And they're all very confused. And they're walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus walks alongside them, the risen Jesus. They don't recognize him. And he goes, what are you talking about? And I'm going to quote it to you. And they res- respond to him saying this. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? When you actually read the Bible and get through it and get through the language and get through some of the super spiritual translations, you suddenly find that it's actually quite funny, the Bible. What's just happened? The two people don't know what's going on and, they, and Jesus asks what's going on. They go, uh, are you the only person who doesn't know what's happened over the last two or days Asking the one person who actually does know, no one else gets it, the one person who actually does know, I find that quite amusing. And then, then it carries on, uh, it's, it's even, it gets even better for me. In verse 25, Jesus says to these two, who he knows, they're his disciples, why are you so thick-headed? Meek and mild, Jesus say. Eh? Why are you so thick-headed? Why did you find it so hard to believe every word that the prophets have spoken? Wasn't it necessary for Christ the Messiah to experience all these sufferings and then afterward enter into glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He's basically saying, you fickos, did you not read your Bible did you not, and they didn't have the New Testament. Did you not read the Old Testament? It said what was going to happen. How did you miss it? It's not the first time Jesus says it. In John 5, he's talking, and I think he's talking to the Pharisees, but it's not quite clear. And he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. You see, if you go right to the start of John, it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And go down a few verses, and it says, And the word became flesh in the body of Jesus Christ. Now, we lose some of the significance of that statement because we get caught up on the word. It's got to be the word. We need a scripture from God. It's got to be the word. And we over-spiritualize the message or religiousify or something like that. I make it too religious, the message. What that word logos can be translated as the word, or it could be simply translated as the message, or it can be translated as the blueprint. All translations of those words is equally valid. But then just see what happens to John 1 when you do that. In the beginning was the blueprint. Or let me put it in in another words. In the beginning was the message. 
and the message was with God and the message was God and then the message became flesh in the body of Jesus Christ. You see, from the foundation of the world, God's been communicating to us. And he's been saying right from the beginning, the lamb has got to be slain on a cross. It's there right from the beginning. How do we miss it? The fact that God, that Jesus would have to be a substitute for us, for our sins, to save us from the wrath of God. Something that we're being saved from the devil. It's from the wrath of God. It's the God who's the, who's the one to judge at the end. His substitute to save us from the wrath of God so that we may be free, so that we may enter heaven and into eternal life. It is there right from the beginning and it's the message which God has been trying to communicate to the people on this earth right from the start. And yet the message becomes flesh and the thick-headed, I'm just using the the Bible word, the thick-headed Pharisees miss it. Even Jesus' disciples miss it. And even us, with our New Testament and with our explanation of of what happened, read the Old Testament and miss it. Well, at least I do anyway, and I'm I'm just being honest. I'm I'm going to see if I do, then maybe one or two of you might do as well. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go to Genesis 41, a well-known story, story about the Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph, and we're going to see if we can find Jesus in the scriptures. Now, when we get to Gen- Genesis 41, uh, Joseph has already told the two dreams he had to his brothers and his parents, saying how they're all going to bow down to him, correctly interprets the word of God. Doesn't really go that well. He gets, he gets thrown into a pit. They, they plan to murder him, but he ends up in slavery in Potiphar's house. And then he's doing well in Potiphar's house, and then Potiphar's wife decides, well, he's a bit of all right, that Joseph, isn't he? tries to get him into her bedchamber. He sticks to his integrity into following God, runs from, from sin, and then ends up in prison because of it for a crime he never committed. But in that prison, he interprets another two dreams. And that sets him up for being put in front of Pharaoh two years later to interpret another two dreams. One about the famine and one about the, the seven years of plenty. Not only does he correctly interpret them, he tells uh, Pharaoh what to do about it. Pharaoh's impressed, and that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 38. So it's Genesis 41, verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. You shall be in charge of my house and all my people shall be obedient to you. Only regarding the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I have placed you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and then put the gold necklace around his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot. I'm guessing that would be like letting him ride in his second private jet, wouldn't it? But there we go. And then proclaimed ahead of him, bow the knee and he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Now when we read this and when I've heard it talked about from 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 well, I didn't go to Revival Kids, so from Sunday school, when I, when I was a lad, to, to churches, this is what we often regard as the pinnacle of Joseph's story. He's been vindicated. In the words of Dragon's Den, he's made it. If anyone watches Dragon's Den, 
He has finally got all the reward he, he's had. He went through suffering, but he, he held on to God. He said what God told him, even though he was ridiculed for it. He ran from sin, even though he ended up in prison because of it. And But through it all, he stayed true to God. And so God has poured out his blessing and rewarded him. And he is now receiving the fruits of God's blessing. Is that the message? Well, the way I asked that probably makes you think, actually, I don't think that is the message. Think about it. Trust God, and he will give you material wealth, earthly power, earthly fame. Is that the gospel? See, we miss... One of the reasons we miss the true story going through this is it's one just because we don't understand the context. We don't understand the symbolism. We didn't grow up when when Moses was writing this. Joseph is a child of God. What's that mean? It means he has an inheritance in the promised land. He has a promise. He has a covenant. He has an authority in the promised land. Not in the land of Egypt. What does Egypt simplify? No, symbolize, that's the word. And and apologies to anyone who's Egyptian or lives in Egypt. We're talking about an earthly picture of a heavenly principle. But in the Bible, in this context, Egypt symbolizes the worship of false gods, sexual immorality, sin and being bound in sin, worldly wealth, worldly greed, worldly wisdom, a wisdom that believes itself to be enlightened above the people around it uh, and won't be restrained to the narrow confines of the teachings of Yahweh. Doesn't reject the teachings of Yahweh, just, just puts their own human reasoning on top of them. In other words, a culture not very different to our own. And don't think Pharaoh's gone under some kind of conversion because he's recognized that that Joseph is talking with the power of Yahweh. um, Pharaoh thinks he is a god. He doesn't, you read on the story, he doesn't get rid of the the false gods in, in, in Egypt. What's actually happened is that Pharaoh has said, I see the power that you have, Joseph, and I'm gonna take it to serve my kingdom, my influence, my power. And the context where he says, everyone will bow the knee to you, that sounds very similar to the promise that Joseph had right at the start. It's like a blasphemous promise. See, if you've been in pastoral ministry for any length of time and you read this with fresh eyes as in the context of our current culture, you wouldn't look at Joseph and say, yes, he's done it. This is brilliant. The, the, the hard times are behind him. You would look at what Joseph is just about to face and you would get on your knees and pray. He has survived prison. He has survived um, slavery. Now he's going to have to face probably the most dangerous test, test riches and power. Jesus said this, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
And again and again in our churches, we hear of boys and girls, and, and they're, they're brilliant members of our churches, and they love, love God, and they do really well in school. Part of the reason is because they love God, and, and, and they follow his ways, and then they get to university, and they do well in university, and then they get an incredible job, and they end up to be a big, big deal in the city with lots of influence wherever they go. And yet it seems like church and God just seems to get squeezed out their lives. I see many people nodding it because we've seen this story over and over again. But the story doesn't stop there because, because Pharaoh doesn't just stop with wealth and power. Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian name. That's very significant, an Egyptian identity. And then he says, I've got a wife for you, Joseph. I've picked you a, a right corker. She is the daughter of the head priest of one of our gods. What would we think to someone who was doing really well in the world, squeezed out of church life, then marries an unbeliever? Parents would be on their knees praying. This is the most dangerous time for Joseph's life. And Joseph knows it. When he has two kids, he names the first one, I have forgiven and forgotten all the things that have been done to me. The second one, he names this, God has blessed me in the land of my affliction. Joseph knows this is not his promise. He sees Egypt as an affliction. But Joseph, you can have all the wealth you can want. Yes, but it's in the land of my affliction. But Joseph, you have all the power you want. They love you here. Yes, but it's in the land of my affliction. None of this, as a child of the promise, is the inheritance that he wants. And I think the worst of it is this. Joseph's authority and power and wealth comes directly from God. It's linked to the promise in, the inheritance, in his inheritance. What's happened in Egypt? Pharaoh's come along and said, I'll give you all this power, all this wealth, all this popularity. You just have to do one simple thing. Bow the knee to me. I remember Jesus being given a similar temptation in the desert. So if Genesis 41 is not about Joseph's pinnacle of his ministry. In actual fact, it's another trial. What, what is it really about? What is this story? Why is it in here? Well, if you actually read on, and we, we often miss this, in Genesis 45, Joseph actually tells us why he's in Egypt, why he's going through this. And it's, and it's in the context of this. His, his brothers have come back to get food because they're, they're dying in, in, in the promised land because they don't have food. And they've come to get food, and, and, and Joseph plays some games with them, and then anyway, he goes them back again. And... It says that Joseph is overwhelmed. He can no longer control himself, and so he has to reveal himself to his brothers. And it says in verse 5, Joseph says, Do not be angry with yourselves. You have made sold me into slavery here, but God sent me here to save you. Joseph doesn't say, probably what I would say, maybe what you would say, hey, brothers, I'm your lost brother. 
The one you, slaved, you, you sold into slavery and tried to kill, well, now your destinies are in my hands. See those guards? The one that you didn't want to bow down to, well, let, let me tell you, you've been bowing down to me the moment you came in. The one you were, you were jealous of because of all the favor I was getting from my father, well, look at all the favor I have now. Look how I've been vindicated. Look how God has put me up in such a high position, validating who, who I am. No. Do not be angry with yourselves. I was put here for one reason, to save you. In spite of your actions, God has used me to save you. You may think you sent me off, but God sent me to Egypt. So when Joseph is in this situation and, and, and he's got his brothers in, in, in front of him and, he, and he's saving them, I think I'd be tempted to remind them of the dream he had about them bowing down to him, but he doesn't. And yet, Joseph bringing that dream of their, the story of their salvation leads to the brothers, leads to the children of God rejecting Joseph and planning to murder him. Does that sound familiar? That a child of God would tell the other children of God the salvation message and they would plot to kill him. Let, let, me, put, let me give you another little uh, insight. God sent one of his children to the world to suffer in order that he could be at the right place at the right time to bring salvation to the rest of the children of God and also to the rest of the world. Sound familiar? Something deeper is going on here. Let, let me go back to Genesis 3 to, to, to help us understand it. In Genesis 3, God says to Eve, your seed will crush the seed of the snake. And we get a genealogy. Why are genealogies important in the Bible? Because it talks about the seed of Eve. And it goes down, and, and you, get, uh, you get Noah important because he's the seed of Eve. And then you get to someone called Abraham. And God gives, gives Abraham promises, one of which is that he will have the seed. But this is a problem for Abraham because him and his wife are too old to have children. So what has to happen? God has to intervene and miraculously, through a miraculous birth, create Isaac. Isaac has two children. One is, is called Esau and the other one is called Jacob. Well, who's, who's the birthright going to go to? It's going to go to Esau because he deserves it. No, because it's not about that. It's about who God chooses. And so God chooses Jacob to receive the birthright, to carry on the seed. What happens to, to Jacob's seed? Well, he, he has to find a wife, and he, and he finds this girl, and he really likes the look of her. So much so that when he asks her, her, her dad if, if, he, if he can marry her, he said, yes, but you'll have to work for me for seven years. You have to be a slave for me, pretty much, for seven years. And so because he loves Rachel, he works for seven years for her dad. He gets married, and then on the, the, the morning after, he, he turns over and realizes he's not married Rachel, he's married Leah the older sister. And so he goes back to, to, to their dad and goes, this is not fair. The arrangement was Rachel. And, and the dad goes back, you'll have to wait another seven years, work for me another seven years to get Rachel. 
And so he works another seven years because he loves Rachel. Think what that would have done to Leah. The rejected one. So, so Jacob eventually marries um, Rachel, isn't it? I get my names wrong. And uh, it's a problem. She can't have children. Not until later life and, and later in the story does she have two children. But Leah, the one who was rejected, has child after child. She has Reuben. She has Simeon. She has Levi. And she has Judah. Which for those who know the, their Bibles will know that's the line of the seed. Judah coming through the rejected one. And then what happens through, through Genesis? We, we, we read about the story of, of Joseph and then right in the middle of it is, is a story about Judah and Tamar. Why is that in there? Because it's not really a story about Joseph. It's a story about Judah. And then right at the end, Joseph, he, he wants to, to, to uh, get his own back or play a prank on or see, 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 do something with his brothers. So he hides something in Benjamin's sack. And when they are all brought back and, and Joseph says, I'm going to detain Benjamin for the crime he's committed, it's Judah who steps forward and says, I will be his substitute. The punishment that is due to Benjamin, put it on me so that my father will be saved it's a story that is echoed down the ages Judah has seed he has sons and sons and sons and we get to a, a guy called David and he one day rejected again by his brothers is, is there on the hillside and he, and he hears this Goliath giant Goliath walking through the valley saying um, if you will, will you send someone to fight me if they defeat me we will be your slaves but if we defeat you you will be our slaves no one steps forward no one has the courage no one has the ability for some reason but David steps forward and he runs down into the valley and he says to Goliath I will defeat you in the name of God as he runs out he is there as a representative substitute for the people of God taking on the enemy. And when he defeats Goliath, not only does he defeat Goliath for him, he defeats Goliath so the whole of the children of God can be set free. It's right there. And then David, he has promises about his seed. And we go through and you'll read them in, in the Gospels because we get to a great, 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 great grandson of David who is called the son of David, who is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is born in a miraculous birth to the Virgin Mary. He has to flee to Egypt in his early life to escape death. When he goes and tells the rest of the children of Israel, the children of God, the salvation message, they plot to kill him. But that puts him in the right place at the right time to go on the cross for the substitute for you and me. For all the sins we've ever done got wrong. To save us from the wrath of God so that we may have Eternal life. It was there 
from the foundation of the world, the message, the blueprint that Jesus would have to come as a substitute for us and die on a cross so that we can be free. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that for whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Genesis 41 is not about a message about acquiring wealth, acquiring stature, acquiring fame, acquiring vengeance. It is a passage about God's salvation plan. Why do we misread it? Because I believe we often read the Bible as a manual, as a self-improvement plan. Where's my dream? Where's my vision? How can I be a better Christian? How, how, where is my destiny? And we miss it is a message about Jesus from cover to cover. It is a message about God's salvation plan from cover to cover. There is an encounter that you can have when you get in the word of God. But it comes from focusing on him rather than ourselves. Paul writes this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, if we believe what Paul believed, I've been crucified with Christ, what's that mean? I'm dead. I'm dead. My plans are dead. My ministry's dead. My dreams are dead. My future is dead. The life I now live, it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. The life I live in this body, it's not about for my glory. It's not about for my stature. It's not for what I can achieve or what I can, I can put on my Twitter, on my, on my Facebook account. The whole account is about what Jesus has done and Jesus will do. Paul preached this, I will only preach Christ crucified. And yet somehow we seem to make it into a self-improvement program. And all about ourselves. Jesus said this, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now often we see the deny himself as just like, well, I won't sin. It's bigger than that. It's the dying. It's, the, it's not about me. It's all about him, Christ living in me. Pick up your cross and follow me. It doesn't mean that I will necessarily be written about in books. It doesn't necessarily mean that I would have stature in society. It doesn't mean that I'll necessarily have worldly wealth or worldly wisdom or even worldly stature. But Jesus said this, do not build up your treasures on earth, instead store them in heaven. And when we get obsessed about how we look in this earth, how we look to our peers, we're storing up worldly wealth not heavenly wealth. And I, I'm bringing this because one of the things I hear time and time again, and I've got to admit, I've been very guilty of this myself, is that we search God and we read the Bible and we do things in order to justify ourselves. Unlike Joseph, we have a dream, we have a vision, we have a revelation, we think we're called to do something, we, have, we think that we have a mission from God. And then someone says, no. Someone says, not this way. 
Oh, but I'm, I'm, I'm called. I'm called to preach. Yeah, 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 just not on this platform. Oh, but I'm called, I'm called to this ministry. I need money from the church. No. And the church, and this was me, is full of people waiting for validation, waiting for the Pharaoh moment for someone to say, this person is amazing and I'm going to put favor, power, opportunities and prominence among them. And it was never about that. When it's about Jesus, when it's about Jesus, he lifts us high. It's not about my glory. It's not about my reputation. It's about his. And when we can leave our reputation, our futures, our destinies, all that we have at the cross, maybe we will see Christ walk in these streets, walk in our lives, walk in our destinies. Because it's not my ministry, it's not my future which counts, it's not my influence that counts. It's his kingdom. It's his church. It's his body. And my very own life is his. 